This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. So when we sing, guide us to that perfect light, what we're saying and singing is, show us Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your holy scriptures this morning, our desire, our longing is to see Jesus. Um, So Spirit, would you guide us to that perfect light, his perfect light, your perfect light that has come into the world and gives light to all people as the Apostle John records for us. Show us Jesus Show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As as a father, I love the holiday season. um, Having kids has made it sort of renewed excitement and fun for us. It's also made it a little bit awkward, I got to be honest with you. I've noticed that there's a skill that um, as adults we develop over the years. Um, It's the skill of pretending that we like whatever presents we're given. Kids don't have this ability. You may have noticed. Uh, Last Christmas, uh, somebody gave my daughter a present that she didn't exactly love. And she opened it up, looked at it, and just threw it off to the side and went back to the present she'd already gotten that she did like. And I wanted to pull her aside and tell her, hey, sweetie, you gotta lie. Right? I mean, isn't this what we teach our kids? That you, you look at it and every social norm and social cue says, even if you don't like it, you lie. And they don't get that yet. It's just this honesty. They open the present and whatever they think about it, they let you know. And as a parent, I'm just going, oh, please, please, please get them something they like. Because it's going to be awkward for everyone if you don't. See, we learn over the course of our lives, we learn how to receive presents. It's not something we're born with. It's a social cue that we start to get somewhere along the way. I can remember this year getting at a white elephant gift this hideous um, small little porcelain cat. And even at a white elephant gift, you've got to pretend like you like it, right? I mean, you open it up in order for other people to take it. So, oh, it's wonderful. I love cats. I don't, but, but I can at least pretend, because that's what we do, right? That's what we do. We know how to receive a present. Um, we even know how to receive a president, right? Like, we, we cast our ballot, we turn on the news, we watch, and receiving our president at this point is fairly passive, but we know how to receive a present. We know how to receive a president, Do we know how to receive our king? We're in this series over the course of our time together leading up to Christmas that we're calling a line taken out of the great hymn, Joy to the World, Let Earth Receive Her King. In 1719, the great hymn writer wrote, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. We know how to receive a president. We know how to receive a president. Do we know how to receive a king? Uh, I don't think all of us do. 
We've made a case over the last few weeks that Jesus indeed has come, that he is king, that he does rule and reign, that his kingdom is invading the empires of the earth, that we have this beautiful invitation from the gospels to live in his kingdom now. And the question I think we need to wrestle with today is, how do we receive this king? Matthew chapter 2. Will you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be camping out today. But before Matthew chapter 2 comes Matthew chapter 1. And so let me just catch you up on where Matthew's going. If you're here for the first time, you're going, this guy's brilliant. Matthew 1 preceding Matthew 2. Yes, yes. So Matthew has already told us. Um, that an angel visits Joseph, tells Joseph um, not to leave his wife Mary. She's pregnant. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He responds, well, that happens every day, so that's great. Um, no, um, no, he responds by, are you kidding me? Verse 21, the angel says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He goes on to say, this is Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 1, chapter 2, Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, now, just a quick time out. Um, it's not my purpose to destroy your nativity scene that you have in your house this morning. It's not. But... <clears throat> But, okay, um, really quick, how many kings? Well, um, we three kings of Orient are, well, wait a second. Matthew just told us that they weren't kings, they were wise men. Um, we don't know how many there were. We know they bring three gifts, but we have no idea how many there were. I, I guess it's just harder to write a song we, undisclosed amount of wise men travel, uh, right? I mean, it's a little bit harder, you'd probably agree, as you listen to me struggle through it. Not only that, but we see that um, Jesus isn't a baby at this point. He's, he's a child. Most scholars would argue that he's probably in between the ages of one and two. Now, um, my little read is at this point uh, about one and a half years old. My guess is Jesus um, probably wasn't all that much older than Reed. This last week, Reed started responding to me, no way. <laughs> would love to think that maybe Jesus threw down a little bit of the same with Mary and Joseph. <laughs> Time to go make a store run. No way. And I happen to be the king of kings and lord of lords. <laughs> so. Okay, so um, the wise men, if you have them stationed next to baby Jesus in the manger, uh, you don't need to throw them away. You just need to move them across the room. Okay, because they're, they're en route. They're going to him. They're just not there when he's a baby, you're welcome. Okay. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, if you're here with us last week, you'll remember that this title, king of the Jews, was a title that Herod had adopted as his own. 
Caesar Augustus was over the entire Roman Empire, and he appointed people to uh, rule over sections. Uh, Herod was over this section of Judea, and he was considered, um, through a series of political maneuvers and killing of a few people, um, king of the Jews. So when the Magi come and say to Herod, where's he who was not appointed, not elected, not voted in king of the Jews, but born king of the Jews, you have trouble on your hands. Because this is a very political statement. This is political, as N.T. Wright says, this is political dynamite that Matthew is writing about. For we saw, for when we saw his star, uh, when it rose, we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Um, the, the Greek there is, um, is terrified. And all of Jerusalem with him. Well, just a quick time out. Um, Jerusalem's troubled with Herod because when Herod is troubled, he starts to kill people. Okay? So where is he who's born king of the Jews? And everybody goes, uh-oh. And Herod says, uh, yeah, let's talk about this king of the Jews, deep inside, he's troubled. And those ripple effects go out to everybody in Jerusalem, it says, because when Herod gets troubled, people start to lose their heads or find themselves on Roman crosses. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's on the tip of their tongues, and it's five miles away from the place that they stand when they tell him. It's going to be important in a few moments. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You, you know how to receive a present. You, you know how to receive a president, even. But, but do we know how to receive a, a king? Do we know how to receive a king? What we're going to learn from these magi, these magi who, um, uh, a lot of debate about who they were. So as I teach this morning, no, I'm taking about 15 commentaries, trying to weigh which one uh, I sense is the most true to our scriptures, and, and trying to distill for you the massive debate that goes on about who these magi were. Here's sort of what we know about these magi. Um, they were from the east. Okay, that's about it, really. Um, 
No, that's not it. Um, This word magi is Latinized from the Greek word um, magoi, which is translated, transliterated from the Persian for a sect of priests. Now, At the time of Jesus' birth, whether these um, magi, these priests, were from either Babylon or Persia is really unknown, but but it's one of those two most likely. At the time of Jesus' birth, the magi were part of a supreme priestly caste, so they were um, politically high in both of these kingdoms, and they held the office in the upper Magistanes council, as one of their duties was to anoint kings of the Persian Empire. So, we have these pictures, at least I do, in my mind of um, the Magi coming, the wise men coming. There's three of them. They come discreetly. They're riding on camels. They approach Jesus, and they come, and they worship him, and then they sort of discreetly leave. Probably not the accurate scene. If they were political powerhouses, which I think historically we have to argue that they were, if they were in fact kingmakers, which um, in Persia at least they were, then they probably traveled with quite the entourage, okay? Probably not just three little distinct magi or wise men. They probably traveled with quite the entourage. And there's a reason that when Herod sees them coming, he goes, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. Let's, let's talk. Well, let's interact a little bit. Why? Well, because he's threatened. He's threatened because he's the king of the Jews, and these are kingmakers, and they're not coming to anoint him. They're coming to anoint someone else. Here's what we see from the Magi from this passage of Scripture. You know how to receive a present. You know how to receive a president, but you know how to receive a king. See, every single one of us has received a king. Every single one of us has anointed a king over our lives, something that we would bow down to and say, you are supreme. Sometimes it's ourself. Sometimes it's our family. Sometimes it's our job. Sometimes it's our status. But all of us have a king over our hearts. You see, we think we live in a democracy. We really, when it comes down to it, live in a monarchy. And here's the way you appoint and anoint a king. Herod gets this, king of the Jews. Caesar gets this. There was a saying in the Roman Empire at the time, anytime you greeted somebody's hand as you were meeting somebody new, you would say, um, uh, uh, salvation is found in none other save Caesar Augustus. On the coin, the Roman coin, you could see a picture of Caesar that declared Caesar is Lord. Here's what Herod and Caesar knew. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. But in order to have people's allegiance, you need to have people's worship. You don't pledge your allegiance. You worship your allegiance. And you see, the truth of the matter is that kings are appointed by nations through votes and ceremonies, but kings are anointed by individuals in our hearts through worship. Caesar gets it. Herod gets it. I wonder if if we get it. See, here's the big idea that we're going to circle our hearts, our minds around this morning is this, that we crown the king. You've crowned the king, past tense already, of your life through your worship. 
There's something or someone that you've bowed down to, that you've um, appointed to this role of supreme in your life. Um, uh, Tim Keller, in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, which if, if you're done reading the other books I've suggested, that'd be a great one to read in conjunction with this message this week. I mean, brilliant book, but he talks about, hey, the thing that we worship, if we want to know what we worship, it's that thing that if it were to be taken away, taken out of our lives, we would be crushed, we'd be devastated. He goes, that's what's on the throne. And all of us have something like that. What the Magi teach us is that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, mighty God is anointed in our lives personally through our worship. I love the way that Keller puts it in that same book. He says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. Okay, so let's just pause for a moment. Will you just ask the Spirit, what is that? What is that thing? Who is that person? Where is that status? What, whatever, that, that your mind goes to when you think of just pausing. Where does your mind travel to? He goes on to say, what do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? See, we all anoint a king over our lives in worship. The question becomes, and and here's the question for us this morning, okay? Who or what have we anointed as king? Who or what reigns over our lives? Uh, I I love the way that Matthew records this in his gospel for us um, because the chief priests, they answer this question that the magi, these wise men ask. They they ask, um, where's he who's to be born king of the Jews? And it's on the tip of their tongue. They go, well, we're just going to quote from you Micah 5.2. Listen to him. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Quick time out. That's where Micah 5.2 ends. That's the question that the Magi ask. The chief priests are going to add in a little bit more information for him. They're actually going to pull from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. And they say, for from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people. This is a beautiful statement that the chief priests and the scribes make. It wasn't requested information. It was just given information that they give to the Magi. Essentially, they say, there's one who's coming who will be king. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's a king unlike any other. He's the shepherd king. As if to say, This king and this king alone is a king who gives. See, you can set up other kings over your life. Many of us have, many of us do. And maybe this is just this morning a call back to what we've already declared is true, that Jesus is king. Maybe it's for the first time today he's going to invite you, anoint me, worship me onto the throne of your life. But here's the truth of the matter. The other things that we elevate and worship onto the throne of our hearts will always take, will always break and will always let us down. And here's what the scribes and teachers say about Jesus, the shepherd king. He doesn't rule in order to take. He, he rules that he might lead you to green pastures, to 
still waters. That, that he might set up a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That he might fill your cup to the point where it overflows. That he might restore your soul. And see, here's the thing. Any other king we set over our lives will eventually steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is the only king who pours life into us. And John says, life abundant, unbelievable, amazing. So the passage is going to clearly say, hey, we appoint and anoint a king over our lives through our worship. And I just want to say, if you hear nothing else from me, hear this. Jesus longs to be the shepherd king over your life, to lead you by still waters, to restore your soul when it's broken, when you're in need, when you're wondering which way's up, and to lead you to green pastures. Well, what do we learn about the Magi that would teach us more about how to appoint and anoint this king in worship over our lives? How do they teach us to receive our King, I'm glad you asked that. If you hadn't, I don't know what I would have talked about for the next few minutes. So let's dive in a little bit deeper. I want to ask the question, who really, I mean, we've studied the Magi, we've talked about them a little bit, but really who were these people? The first mention we have of Magi in our scriptures, um, you may be surprised, is actually in the book of Daniel. It's not in the book of Matthew. And we have Daniel who actually was appointed to this position of Magi. Listen to the way the book of Daniel talks about this. Daniel chapter 2, in verse 48, Daniel has just um, interpreted a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely astonished. And he said, and the king, it says, verse 48, the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief perfect over all the wise men, or the magi, of Babylon. If you flip over to verse chapter 5, verse 11, it says, your father, speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, made him, Daniel, chief of the magicians. <laughs> Interesting. So hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, we have this declaration, this in our scriptures, it says, Daniel is the chief magi. Interesting. Because if you read the book of Daniel, what you'll see in his book is he's quite prophetic telling about really one thing specifically, the coming of the Messiah. That's you read about it in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9. That was his thrust. Well, I've always wondered, how did these magi know to come to Bethlehem? How'd they know to follow the star? I mean, isn't that just a strange thing we often skip over in the telling of the Christmas story? You have these um, potentially pagan idolaters looking at the sky, and the sky is declaring to them the glory of God, maybe even the works of his hands that day after day they're pouring forth speech, night after night they display knowledge? That specifically? Scholars wrestle with this question, who were the Magi? How did they know by looking at the stars King of kings and the Lord of lords was going to be born. Well, let me throw out one option to you. Uh, it has hints of conspiracy theory, admittedly. Daniel, king of the Magi. Most of his book is chock full of prophetic utterances of the coming Messiah. I mean, I wonder, did he pull this 
chief, these, these priests, this sect of magi aside, and did he maybe declare hundreds of years before the coming of Christ that they should look out for this star? I don't know. But they're waiting. They're hoping. They're willing to move. They're willing to leave. They're willing to go. For some reason, they're willing to travel. It ends up being about 900 miles when it's all said and done to follow that star. However you answer the question, how'd they get there? Why'd they follow it? I think where we land is that this is sort of distinctive of the Magi, and it's distinctive of people for whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is crowned as king in their life. They're people who wait in hope. I think this is a picture of the Magi. They wait in hope, anticipating God's provision. Um, just so you know, uh, uh, people try to answer that question about the star in a ton of different ways. <laughs> um, some would say uh, Haley's comment, I, I think it's probably five years too early as far as the study that I've done. Some people would say it's a supernova, maybe. Um, I, I like the way that N.T. Wright puts it when he says, more likely, it's the fact that the planets Jupiter and Saturn were in conjunction with each other three times in 7 BC, which is actually far closer to the time when Christ was born, probably about 6 BC, than zero, which is the way we track our time. Since Jupiter was the royal or kingly planet, and Saturn was sometimes thought to represent the Jews, the conclusion was obvious. A new king of the Jews was being born. Interesting. Interesting. And they wait, and they hope. And I think here's what they invite us into. A hoping that ends in worship. An anticipating that ends in bowing at the throne. See, all of us will wait at some point in our life. The question is, will we wait in a way that ends in worship or will we wait in a way that ends in despair? And it's all determined by what's on the throne of our heart. What's driving us? What's moving us? See, there's some in this room you're waiting on a job. There's some in this room you're waiting on a child to come home. There's some in this room you're waiting for your health to be restored. The question I think the Magi beg us to ask is, do we wait in hope, anticipating God's provision? And if we do, when we see it on the horizon, we're willing to move like they moved. Uh, uh, The book of Romans, Paul talks about the way that Abraham waited. Listen to what he says. He says, in hope, he believed against hope. And here's why that's awesome. Because he's admitting Abraham hoped when it made no sense to hope. I wonder if the Magi felt the same way. We're hoping on this Messiah. We're waiting on this Messiah. And it makes absolutely no sense. Feel like that this morning? Where everything logical in your life goes, it's just probably time to give up Hope. I think what these men remind us of distinctly about worshiping and anointing the King of Kings, Lord of Lords over our lives is it distinctively means that we are people of hope. Here's the second thing it means. Look look at the way that Matthew tells a story about this magi. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of uh, of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, If they were from the east and came to Jerusalem, it means that they had to leave some things behind, yes? Okay, let's try that again. 
Okay, thank you. Praise the Lord. We're away. Praise Jesus. If the Magi are from the east and they're traveling to Jerusalem, it means they had to leave some things behind, yes? Yes, yes, it does. Um, It meant that they had to leave home, um, most likely somewhere between a 550 and a 900 mile journey, depending on how uh, the route that they went. Now, they're wise men, so I believe they went the fastest route, okay? But it's probably somewhere around 900 miles. They have to leave their tradition. They have to leave their culture. They have to leave getting on camelback or however they traveled with people asking the question, you're going to do what, with whom, where, are you kidding me? Come on. And friends, this is the way that anytime we crown Jesus king over our lives, it requires a leaving. Because something else is probably already on the throne. And we need to step away from it. See, there's this willingness in these magi, this willingness to leave the familiar and embrace the unknown. And we can talk about that on a Sunday morning, but I can tell you it's really hard on a Monday morning, isn't it? I I think it feels a little bit romanticized when we talk about it in the magi. Yeah, they left home. They left everything they knew in order to come and to bow at this little baby, this kid's feet. Man, that's not an easy thing to do, is it? I've gone through one of the rites of passages of having a son. I walked into my son's room the other night, and I told you earlier uh, this year that he loves Legos. Walked into my son's room at night to just pray for him as he's sleeping. It's all dark. If you've had kids that love Legos, you've probably had this experience There's nothing like stepping on a Lego with bare feet, is there? I mean, almost tears. I'm down. I'm walking towards his room, and it's just immediately, oh! Sweet Lord, what was that? I think the Magi's journey probably felt a lot more like that to them than it does in our Christmas nativity scenes where we go, oh, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this joyful? Isn't this great? And they're going, no, it was really, really hard. It was really hard. We had to leave the things that we'd grown accustomed to, the things that we knew, the things that were um, acceptable, and we had to walk away in hopes of seeing this king. Because kings are anointed in our hearts through worship. Isn't it ironic? Matthew records for us, these wise men, they go and they ask these other wise men, the chief priests and the scribes, where is he who's to be born Christ, king of the Jews? They're five miles away. They have the scriptures. They've pinpointed where he's going to be born. The wise men come and say, the time is now. And they're unwilling to leave. I mean, a day's walk to just check out. Hey, maybe this is it. I mean, they don't at least send Billy, who's like on the outskirts, say, Billy, go, go with them. Report back. And for me, it's this picture of what can happen when you're around the story of Jesus for so long that you, you no longer hear it. Scary, isn't it, friends? 
I mean, if you've been around the story for a while, it should scare, it should terrify us that the chief priests and scribes know exactly where Jesus is going to be born. It's five miles away from their house, and they refuse to go and check it out. Can I just say, I, I love you as your pastor, I love you, but I think some of us live in that place. He's right underneath our nose. We come and surround ourselves with people who love him every week. And yet we refuse to leave what's comfortable and go and bow. Here's the thing. Sometimes what's comfortable is fear. Sometimes what's comfortable is guilt. Sometimes what's comfortable is anger and bitterness and I'm not gonna forgive and that's just the way my life's gonna be. Sometimes that's what's comfortable. And I think one of the things the Christmas story through the Magi invites us to do is to leave it to bow and worship at the king. They follow this revelation, this light that they have. Uh, however they received it, however they got it, they followed it. And they didn't just worship the stars. What they did was worship the creator of the stars. So they said, we can't just stop there. We've got to go find this baby, this child who was born king of the Jews. And I love the way that Jesus honors their honest pursuit. He honors their honest pursuit. He honors them saying, we want to find you, Jesus. We want to worship you, Jesus. We want to approach you, Jesus. He honors that pursuit and leads them to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That might be how some of you found yourself here this morning. You're just going, there's got to be a little bit more. I've been bound down to the worship of the stars, maybe not literally, but, but metaphorically in my life. That There's some things that I enjoy. There's some things I love, and those things have become God, but you've realized they just can't satisfy the deepest longings in your soul. Can I, can I encourage you? I think God puts some things in all of our life that are intended to fulfill us to a point things we love, to fulfill us to a point that actually get us to a place where we say, that doesn't get the job done anymore, so we take a step further from the things we enjoy to the one who created it all. It's this picture we have of the Magi. So maybe this morning you leave your doubt, maybe you leave your bitterness, maybe you leave your perspective of the way that things should be. But I think any worship Fires leaving. I thought we had like three hours for the sermon, so that's where all that came from. It's weird, they keep changing that on me. Verse 10, as we continue the story. Verse 10. Um, when they, the, the Magi, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We're gonna come back on that in a second. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell down and they worshiped him. So, so here's this word, worship. Um, literally, it meant in ancient Greek, blow a kiss. Uh, it came to be added to this word, to blow a kiss, to bow. So you take those two things together to blow a kiss, and to bow. Um, literally, it meant to kiss the feet of. So in our nativity scenes, we see the magi sort of bowing very properly to the baby, Jesus. 
they're probably flat on their face. This one and a half year old toddler, having left everything that they know, their tradition, their home, their culture, their acceptance, and they find themselves in this nothing village of Bethlehem, flat on their faces in front of this baby. See, we know how to receive a present. We know how to receive a president. But do we know how to anoint a king? This is the way we anoint a king over our lives. By bowing and saying, everything I have is yours. And, and the magic, so then they start to like open their pockets and their chests and they give him gold. They give him frankincense. They give him myrrh. But more than that, here's what's symbolic there. A lot of stuff. We could go into it. But here's what's symbolic there is their declaration, we will give ourselves in bowing, but we also will give our stuff. Because any worship includes giving. And I don't say that to coerce you into giving here. Please don't hear that. What I do say is what Jesus says. If you want to know what you've bowed down to, just simply follow the trail of your treasure. Because it's going to lead you to where your heart is. And so the Magi, they bow. And so we start to see that worship is birthed in waiting. Starts to take place in leaving. Culminates in bowing in adoration, and gladly giving our resources, our stuff, ourselves, our time, our talent, our treasure, whatever it was, that's a piece of worship. And whatever you've anointed as king over your life has your stuff. Just like it had the Magi's. I love the way that Tim Keller puts this. He says, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it's essentially an idol something you're actually worshiping. Herod is unwilling to bow at the feet of Jesus, not because he doesn't think that Jesus is king, but just because he thinks he's more important than that king. The Magi, in contrast, come and they bow down. I love the way that this passage ends. Here's how it ends. Matthew chapter Two, verse 12, and being warned, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I already said that they're wise men. So they probably took the shortest way there. So going another way home would have been longer, yes? Thank you. Isn't that sort of the way of Jesus that sometimes it feels like the way he asks us to do things, it's like, come on, Jesus, there's a whole better way to do it. Like, there's a culturally acceptable way to do it. Could we go there? Um, there's a way that my friends would be, approve of. Can we, Jesus, can we do that? And, and here, don't miss this. Don't miss this. They bow at the feet of Jesus and then hear the voice of God. Anything you've bowed to has your ear. I talk to people all the time, Ryan, I just can't hear God. I don't know what God wants me to do. And here's what the, I think the Magi would invite us to. Well, worship. Bow to him. 
And maybe then you'll start to hear his voice. If you can't hear him, maybe he's not king. Maybe something else is filling that slot. And if it is, it's louder. But here's what the Magi teach us. The only king crowned in our life is the one we obey. Say it again. The only king crowned in our life is the one we obey. So I say this to you in your past, as your pastor. I say this to you in love. I say this to you because I want your joy. But if you say Jesus is crowned as king, but you don't live in the way he taught his followers to live, you're deceiving yourself. Maybe today it's just a journey home. Back to his throne. Back to say, Lord, we long to, as part of our worship, to walk in obedience and relationship with you. This is the way that this journey goes for these magi, these wise men. They bow to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, this Christ child. And then they hear his voice. And they follow. I want to land the, the plane here back in verse 10, because I just love it. I think sometimes we gather together, and you may have been a part of a lot of churches, and maybe their purpose in teaching is a lot different. My purpose in teaching every single Sunday, can I just, I'll tell you this, will you look up at me for just a second, is to fight for your joy. That's my purpose. I want to point you to Jesus, in whom the scriptures say is abundant life. So there's an enemy of your soul who longs to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. The shepherds, or sorry, the magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced, joy, exceedingly, as in joy, joy, with great joy. You might even go so far as to say, now if you know your carols, you may know where I'm going, but you might even go so far as to say, they exclaimed, joy, joy, joy. That's right. Praise be to God in heaven on high. As if for Matthew, it's too little to say they rejoiced, but he had to go, oh, they, re they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy because the shepherd king has come. The one who would lead them to paths of righteousness, the green pastures, the still waters, the one who wasn't going to come and rob them of their soul, but come and repair it, restore it, redeem it, breathe life into it. The shepherd king had come. And they saw him. And they responded, joy. That, friend, is the journey that God invites us on. So the question is, we know how to Receive a present. We know how to receive a president. But do we know how to receive a king? We receive a king through our worship. And the crowning of this king, the shepherd king, the shepherd ruler, King Jesus, culminates in joy, joy, joy. Praise be to God in heaven on high. Let's worship.
Let's pray together. Father, as we close our time, um, Spirit, I, I, I long, would you just search us? Would you know us? Point out if there's any way offensive in us. Lead us to the life everlasting that happens only at your throne. So Father, for, for my friends here in this room, is there just, maybe some of them are wrestling with you, some other things that are on the throne of their heart, their life. Would you help them see that? Would you help us see that? Would you help me see that? that we might bow in worship to King Jesus, to you alone. Father, we know that kings and presidents are appointed through, through a vote, through a decision. But we also know as individuals, the king of our heart is anointed and appointed through our worship. And we long for that to be only to King Jesus this morning, the shepherd king. We worship you and you alone. Spirit, would you just do your work in our heart and our life that we might bow in a fresh way to Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.